Good Monday morning, podcast listeners. Welcome to the LPP Podcast. You're listening to a segment that we call Monday Morning Ammunition. LPP is the Life Process Program, an online, non-12-step counseling program for people who want to overcome addiction, and not only to drugs, but any number of non-drug involvements. To learn more about the Life Process Program or to access free addiction-related educational resources, visit our website at www.lifeprocessprogram.com or follow any of the links in the show notes. You can also text us at 802-391-4360. That's our text line. Again, it's 802-391-4360. And yes, when you text us, it'll be a real person on the other end, ready to direct any questions or comments you may have about the Life Process Program, the podcast, or just addiction-related questions in general. As I mentioned, this is a segment that we call Monday Morning Ammunition, a podcast that we put up every Monday, no matter what else is going on in our podcast world. The Life Process Program has eight distinct modules to represent eight various dimensions of one's life that they might consider while they're thinking about and trying to overcome an addiction. And so for the next eight weeks, actually starting last week, we're going over each one of those modules. Today is Module 2, Values. You don't have to listen to these in order, uh, in order to get value from each one of the modules and the explanations, but if you'd like to, just go to episode 12, last episode, and you'll be able to hear module one, which is self-reflection. And eventually we'll have a series of eight, and then we'll have a one entire long podcast that you can listen to. Enjoy today's episode, episode number 13 of the LPP podcast. We will now discuss module two, Values. The second module is values. There's a charge that I often get, not usually from participants in our program, but from other people who theorize or think about addiction, that tying in values to addiction or the process of overcoming an addiction is being uh, moralistic and saying that uh, people choose addictions and they shouldn't have chosen them and will screw them. Um, Maybe we could get that out of the way or, or touch on that a little bit first. Well, I mean, I have two answers to that. The first answer is when we ask them what their values are, what's the most important thing in their lives to them, which is one of the exercises, we begin with that. And I say, I'm not here to tell you what your values are. That's not my game. I'm not telling you to believe in God or that there's a higher power. I'm not here to tell you uh, that you you've been doing your family wrong or you've been not being true to yourself. I'm asking you, what's most important in your life? What are your most important values? Um, And people have answers to those questions. I mean, their families were always very important. Some people are very concerned about control, being in control of themselves. Some people are religious. Some people just say, well, I want to live a good life. Some people say, I want to be healthy. There there are no wrong answers to the values question. Um, We're just exploring that. And one other way I do that is to tie back to the smoking question. If they've quit smoking or some other addiction, or if their father or their brother or their wife or husband quit smoking or some other addiction, I say, tell me, why do you think they quit? And it's hard to explore that question without something that looks a lot like values popping up. Well, they just didn't like the way it looked. They thought it made them less of a person. They didn't like to be under the sway or the control or the power of something outside of themselves. Of course, 
many are going to say they certainly they wanted, didn't want to be a poor role model for their children. That's often front and foremost. Or they might give a religious reason. They might give a political reason. And, you know, at some point, we'll, I think, get into the story of my Uncle Oscar quitting smoking. And, you know, we'll talk about what his values were that finally led him in that direction. And they were, you know, somewhat different from, you know, most people's values. If you were to ask somebody that question, I wonder if it's possible for them to give an answer about why they or somebody they know quit an addiction without bringing in something like a value. I mean, I I don't even think that's possible. Yeah, I mean, values is almost, it's a reason, if you're addicted, well, that's the status quo. And then you've changed that. There sort of has to be a why did you change that? And it's possible that they don't know what the why is. You and I both have a friend, um, Mark Lewis, who sort of had a heavy-duty heroin addict, uh, drug addiction. And then when he quit it, he tends to explain it by the fact that his brain matured. And then, and he hadn't quit it before, if I were to talk to him, I'd say, were there any downsides to that addiction that you disliked? Uh, and of course, he has answers to that. Do you feel it was negatively motivated? What about your life that led you in that direction? Of course, he has answers to that. And so you're already having a discussion about what he disliked about the addiction and what made him want to change even if he wasn't sitting there at a table with a Ouija board or a checklist saying, oh, I'm going to quit this now because of A, B, and C. It's a a form of mindfulness. We're not doing psychoanalysis, but we do want them to explore the contours of their mind, especially searching for what we might call weapons or assets to deal with their addiction or addiction-like behavior. So having an exercise that's centered around values is, among other things, a tacit way that we're saying to a person that they have choices and that they have autonomy rather than what can be seen by some people as, well, why don't you just stop? We're saying you care about things. And obviously, whatever reason, this destructive, self-destructive cycle is your status quo. You've chosen it above something else. Maybe we can rethink what some of those values are since you're saying you'd like to stop your addiction now. And so let's start with at the building block with your values. And so a question would be, how do values exactly play a role in beating addiction? You could comment on anything I just said. or Well, we, in our self-exploration, of course, we, we don't believe that people just become addicted and just become unaddicted. I mean, it's true that people fall into things. And if you're hanging around with people who are doing certain things, you'll do them. But we ask them, what kind of feelings and what kind of reasons do you have for doing what you do? For example, somebody says, well, I drink a lot at parties or maybe around my wife out of anxiety. And, you know, it makes me feel socially more comfortable. Or obviously, people say I smoke because it's a way of relaxing myself and when I'm tense around work. So we feel that behavior is motivated. There's an explanation for it. We don't want to grill them and nail them down and and say, um, well, here's the real reason. I mean, of course, trauma therapy always often do that and say, oh, you were raped as a child or you were beaten as a child or you were screamed at as a child. 
none of those explanations really work because there are people who've had those experiences who didn't become addicted. So there's some kind of an internal mechanism. The reason is some kind of a reaction to those things. And we want, we want them to know that because you can't change traumas or events. You can change reasons and reactions. We use the Uncle Ozzy story as a, a funny example of how offbeat that can be and how unpredictable in a sense, because the story I love to tell about my Uncle Oscar, he's been dead now about 10 years, I guess. He, uh, I came home for the funeral of my grandfather, Oscar's father-in-law, and I noticed I was at Michigan at the time in graduate school, and I noticed that Oscar wasn't smoking, and I say, Oscar, you're not smoking. Didn't you used to smoke? I, I knew he used to smoke. He smoked heavily. And he said, oh, right, I quit since, you know, last time I saw you. One thing about Oscar, very calm man. Wasn't an anxious guy. I turned to him often uh, as a kind of father figure. He was a guy who would do, talk to you about things, help you with things. Very relaxed, but he smoked a lot. And then he told the story about how uh, during a lunch break, he worked at GE fixing TVs and radios. They had raised the price of cigarettes. This is before the 64 Surgeon General's report. Although it's hard to believe anybody thought smoking was good for you before they learned to cause cancer. And they had raised the price of cigarettes from 30 to 35 cents. And as he put the money in the machine, a coworker said, look at Ozzy, he's a sucker for the tobacco companies. And Oscar said, you're right, I'm going to quit. And then the woman said, oh, can I have that pack of cigarettes? And Oscar said, what, and waste 35 cents? And he smoked that pack of cigarettes and never smoked another cigarette in his life. He was 42 at the time. He had been smoking since he was 18, so that's a quarter of a century, four packs a day of unfiltered cigarettes. And then he lived to be over 90. So, you know, he ended up spending twice as much time not being addicted to smoking. And my uncle claimed he never thought, he claims he never thought once about quitting. And he had two kids, a teenage son, Ella, well, Ellis is already in college, and a teenage daughter. And Ozzy, he was a good father, but he was so relaxed that he never once thought, oh, you know, I shouldn't be smoking around my children. That wasn't the kind of thing that Oscar bothered himself about. And so he claimed he had no reason to want to quit smoking and he never thought about quitting smoking. And, you know, I believe whatever people tell me, I'm not going to argue with them about it. But in the course of the conversation, he said things like, oh, it was a filthy habit. When I got home, I, I had a cigarette lit the entire time by my bench while I was working and I was smoking. I would, my fingers would be totally tobacco stained. No amount of wash. I could wash the grease off my hands, but I couldn't wash the tobacco. It doesn't sound like a guy who thought that was a good thing. Um, so people are percolating all kinds of ideas in their head. And sometimes those things light themselves on fire. And sometimes it's our job to help them explore their values <laughs> like to say to Oscar, how do you feel about smoking in front of your kids? And, and that's the motivational process that we're going to be discussing next. Motivation as a way of reflecting on your values. And we're going back, going back to the assessment. 
we're, we've asked them questions and the non, we've asked them why you smoke or why you drink or why you eat too much. And we've asked them, what do you gain from that? They reduce tension. They feel socially accepted. They're rewarding themselves. They feel maybe it's those they like themselves. And then another question we've asked them in this process is, what consequences does it have for the things that you value? Mm. To second you, I, we don't judge what somebody's values are. If somebody says, well, I value A, B, and C, we wouldn't say, ooh, rough, you should value something else. But just as a thought experiment here or, or something quasi-concrete, do you think that there are values you know, that generally leave people more successful for ameliorating addiction than, than other things they could value? Well, that's a philosophically uh, meaningful question. I mean, one thing I say is there's certain values that I expect people to often say that family is a big value for an awful lot of people. So, and I happen to know, not Ozzy, but a lot of people have quit smoking. You know, they didn't want to smoke when they were pregnant and they didn't want to be an alcoholic or a drug addict or certainly a love addict when they had a family with a wife or a husband and, and children. So I'm pretty alert to certain kinds of values. Obviously, people are aware. People say, you know, one day I quit smoking when I looked around a table. I was at a conference and everybody pulled out a cigarette. And I say, I don't want to be a patsy or under everybody else's control. Obviously, people are aware now, of course, about the health issues. So there are certain values that tend to reappear. They're kind of common. But I would almost say inherent in the idea of values is that they're positive. Mm. People are going to give a positive value for things or something that you can interpret as valuable. I don't think people are going to tend to say something destructive. I mean, here's an example that may be sort of halfway in between. I want to show I'm better, better than my brother-in-law because I'm going to quit smoking and he couldn't. Would you say that was a positive value or how would you react to that value? Oh, that's a good question. That would perhaps would speak to a person's temperamental preference, maybe that's somebody who values achievement and just their interpretation of achievement in this sense is that they want to win the contest. Of course, it could be that could be destructive in terms of the relationship with their brother. Is it that really your sole reason? For well, we're going to get down in, in the modules <clears throat> relationships with others. So we might make a note. Is this guy in some kind of crazy competition with his brother-in-law? Does he mm. feel his brother-in-law looks down on him? Maybe he doesn't make enough money. Does he feel he's not adequate? So we, we maybe we'll make a note about that. But in the instance, in the in the immediate instance, I mean, we are in the business of helping people quit their addictions. I'd say okay. I'd say okay. That'll be good. You can impress people by quitting smoking. Press your brother. Press your whole damn family. You know your wife too. Obviously, another question you would. I mean, you would think, huh, how's things going with his wife? Which you've probably, you know, you've already asked him, how does your wife react to your smoking? Right. So that's already come up in some form or another. And, um, you know, people are complicated and they have complicated lives. But as a leverage point, wanting to be better than your neighbor because you were able to quit smoking, wanting, wanting to impress people. I'll show them how good I am because I quit smoking. I don't know. Healthy ego, I would call that. Good enough for me. Just a call back here. If somebody said something like, well, I value self-destruction, then at that point, it's almost like, 
well, seems like you're doing a decent job. So what's the program for? There's almost no realistic answer that you that you could value something and that turns into a total negative. You almost can't say, well, I value something that opposes my addiction that we can't as a coach or, or somebody helping that person that we couldn't spin as a positive. Well, they have, uh, I don't know if you've ever watched any motivational interviewing tapes. Uh, Bill Miller's put out some. And some of them are, I've watched them as entertainment. I can't remember all those damn categories they create. But they did have a funny one where a guy goes, well, you know, and he explains why he smokes. Because, well, it keeps my weight down. It helps me be successful at work. And I support my family. And then he goes on and on. And then the interviewer goes, oh, I guess you'll never be able to quit. And then the funny thing about that whole approach is, the guy says, no, I didn't say that. And he starts arguing with you. So there's no bad answer. And, even, and of course, if the guy says, well, I can't quit my addiction, you have to remain footloose and fancy free. Now I'm talking to coaches now. When people throw you curveballs, you can't panic. You have to work with the response and even turn it back to the person. Because obviously, if it's true, if the person is saying, I don't want to give up my addiction, if that's what they're saying to you, you're not going to beat them at that game. You want them to sort of just reflect on what it is they're telling you and why they're wasting their time and money with you. When people can, they've done this exercise, they're engaging and maybe they figured something out. And now they say, okay, well, I care about A, B, and C, yet my addiction seems to oppose it. Now people need to figure out, well, how do I live according to the things that I truly value, the things that help me in the, not just in the moment for local pleasure, but in the medium to long term. So people living with an addiction know sort of that they'd like a change and that they'd like meaningful change that lasts for a long time. So one thing you're saying is they're contrasting their values. I mean, we're, we're not, I don't approve of saying, you know, really sinewy things, insinuating things. Like, well, how do you, I would never say, oh, how do you like the short-term satisfaction of getting your work done, but you're going to die? I don't count that as motivational interviewing. I wouldn't either. What you are, we're getting into the next module now of motivation, where the question is, how do you help the person leverage and contrast their values into an actual desire to change, where they have values that haven't been working on their behalf or they've hidden values. I know you worked up a few questions before. Let me throw one of those at you, Zach. Sorry to interrupt, but answering this question would get us into the next section, which is module three, motivation. To hear how I answer this question and to hear about module three, tune in next week on Monday morning to the LPP podcast.